Hello and welcome to the Learning from Legends show with me, Peter Switzer. And today's show is about generating alpha and generation alpha. We first kick off with the legendary economist Shane Oliver from AMP Capital, who also happens to be a rock tragic. Why? And then Ashley Fell from McCrindle, who looks at Generation Alpha, which is set to be the healthiest, the wealthiest, and possibly the weirdest generation ever. So, without any further ado, let's cross to AMP Capital's legendary economist, Shane Oliver. Well, as my introduction said, this is a legendary economist, Shane Oliver. Great to see you, mate. Great to be here, Peter. Now, Shane, before we start talking about fantastic numbers we saw today, namely the economic growth numbers, I also did uh, tell people in the introduction that you are quite an unusual economist in, sense, in the sense that you're a, you're a rock tragic, aren't you? And, and particularly a Elvis Presley tragic. Where's that come from? Uh, that's a good question. I, I don't know. Maybe it has something to do with the way people's brains are wired. That once you hear a good tune, you get locked onto it. And uh, I think I fell in love with Elvis when I was about 16. In fact, uh, I can remember, it's one of those events, you know, when I heard that, that uh, heard that Elvis had died, my mother told me in the morning I was eating um, rice bubbles, I think. <laughs> it depressed me for the whole day. And ever since then, I've been a glued-on fan. Of course, yeah. back then, I didn't know much of Elvis. I hadn't seen any of his, I'd seen some of his B-grade films, but I hadn't seen his uh, concert uh, documentaries. So it was mainly after that that I became a big fan, but. I mean, that led to a whole bunch of other things. Once you get into Elvis, which is towards the start of rock and roll or pop music, you get into others. And, of course, I try and mention a few of them each week in my uh, weekly notes, mm. which uh, usually, usually usually leads me to other things as well as people send me stuff and I find uh, clips of bands and groups that I didn't know existed. Yeah. Do you think deep down, because, you know, some people could call you, and I've never heard anyone do it, but as I've known you a long time, you could be described as a Clark Kent of, of economics. You, know, <laughs> you wear glasses, you're a mild-mannered reporter of economics um, for a great metropolitan insurance and wealth <laughs> management business. But on the side, you, you, you slip into your Elvis outfit and, and you do actually have a, a, an Elvis impersonation outfit, don't you? No, no, no. I, you I don't, don't oh, quite go that I've far. gone too I far. I, was, I think they tried to get me down that far in a newspaper um, article a few years ago. And okay. I think all I did was put the, um, the glasses on. Well, actually, I do have the glasses. I, I did buy the glasses when I went to uh, Memphis, to Graceland, yeah. a few years ago with my family. I, I could have spent days there, but unfortunately, the family wanted to go somewhere else. Yeah, they're so. normal. <laughs> they're normal. They wanted to go somewhere else, yeah. I, I got my kids there for a couple of days, but uh, my wife had given up by then, and then we had to move on to somewhere else. So mm. anyway, um, yeah, I, I, don't, I don't quite think that I can actually be an Elvis, so therefore I don't quite go down the path it's, of having yeah. his outfit is it, is it, do you think it's a bit like an alter ego that if you couldn't be you, you'd be Elvis? <laughs> <laughs> Possibly. I mean, wouldn't go there. I mean, Elvis did have a few uh, failings, I must admit. But yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, that said, I, I, if, I, if I was to be an entertainer, I'd want to be Elvis. You know, okay. No doubt about that. Okay. And so and what's your favourite Elvis film, Max? I've got a, fa a favourite Elvis film. Uh, well, most people wouldn't know this one. It's Live a Little, Love a Little, 
Mm. which was made in 1968. It's when Elvis was starting to get cool again with sideburns mm. after the post-army period through most of the 60s. And it also had, I think, at least one but two uh, good Elvis songs, a little less conversation is in that. Oh, really? Um, uh, which was then turned into a mega hit a few years ago uh, by a, um, a rapper or somebody or other. Yeah. Anyway, and then... Uh, JXL, I think it was, JXL, which is in about 2000, 2001. And then, of course, uh, it had The Edge of Reality, which I don't think was a major hit. It was a bit of a hit in Australia when it was mm. released in 1968, but um, it doesn't compare to A Little Less Conversation. But still, it's 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 a cool film. It's like a sitcom, not a sitcom, romantic comedy. Mm. Um, was it black and white uh, or, or coloured? No, they're all in colour. Virtually mm-hmm. every Elvis film. He made uh, was it, uh, 29 feature films plus two documentaries. Mm. Uh, virtually all of them are in colour. I think it's only the very early ones, yeah, black right. and white. Okay. Because well, my, my favourite is uh, Roustabout, uh, only because of one particular scene. That was the scene of Little Egypt. You know, she, what is it? She, <laughs> I don't know that song. Uh, yeah, she, she had a, t- a tattoo on her, her um, gee, I used to remember the whole world. She, she did something and she crossed the floor. Uh, anyway, it, it was... The scene, like the little Egypt scene, I'll never forget. No, okay, accuse me of being testosterone-driven as a young man, but it was a fantastic scene, and I yeah. always rated Elvis as a consequence of that. That film uh, had Barbara Stanwyck in it as well. Yeah, yeah. I, remember. I, can't, I can't remember the others, but mm. most Elvis films did have quite famous uh, people in them, Yeah, believe it or not. Well, he, in, in fact, he, was, he was big. Well, he was big. By the end of the 60s, he was getting paid a million dollars a film, which was a lot of money back then. Mm. Okay. So that's it. That's the, the normal side. And also, do, do you ride a surfboard? I know you, you, you kind of look like a surfer. You live very close to the beach. Do you ride a surfboard? Uh, not these days. I have, but I, not these days. I've sort of given up uh-huh. because uh, I got a family and so we got into boating and other things. So uh-huh. I'm not really as much into surfing as uh-huh. I Perhaps should be. Yeah. The, the, the problem I have with surfing is that in Sydney beaches, they're crowded. Everybody drops in on you. And in the age of the, uh, the millennials, they don't actually observe the old drop-in rules. It's just <laughs> like, yeah. And so, and I, and I, did, go for a sur- I did go for a surf at, up at Kingscliff this year and uh, I was the only one in there. And, and at 6 o'clock in the morning, I realised after – there's a lot of sharks in that area nowadays. It probably wasn't a really yeah. smart idea. Yeah, you've got to be a bit careful. I was recently up at Southwest Rocks, and again, there was hardly anyone in there. Um, you could have the beach virtually to yourself. Mm. But, uh, I, I mean, that was the only – we had a, a cluster. I live, I live in Avalon. We had our own coronavirus cluster. I think we got to 180 cases because of the BOLO and the RSL and various things that happened around that time. But it it was a terrible time. Lockdowns are horrible, but the one upside was that we couldn't leave and no one could come in, and so we had the beaches to ourselves. Yeah. So if you uh, wanted to avoid getting cut out on a wave, that was the time to do it. Perfect time to do it. The one upside from uh, coronavirus lockdown. Okay, so I proved to Australians at large that you are a normal person Beneath the usual stuff that people ask you about. Let's go back to the usual stuff people ask you about. And today we got the latest economic growth number. Came in better than expected? It certainly did. Um, I mean, must admit, by the time we got there after yesterday's data, uh, the data on Tuesday. So what happens is the ABS progressively releases more and more stuff that relates to the quarter 
And there was a bunch of economic data released on Tuesday, the day before, yesterday that is, and uh, it caused us to revise up to 1.9%. But bear in mind, a week ago, we were looking for 1.1%. Mm. So in that sense, it's better than expected. And likewise, for the market as a whole, uh, it was feared that this would lead would see much slower growth this quarter because of weak trade. But it was more than offset by a whole bunch of other things. We're seeing a recovery in consumer spending on services. So goods have been booming. We all know that. Yeah. Um, but that's now falling back to more normal levels. But services spending is picking up. Very strong housing investment, strong business investment, uh, public demand was good. And all of those things are driving a pretty good rebound in the Aussie economy to the point that we're one of the few developed countries that are seeing GDP above where it was prior to coronavirus. So most other um, countries, Europe, the US, they've released March quarter stuff already, and they're still behind where they were in December quarter 2019. So not only have we seen a great rebound, and I would call it a deep V rebound. Remember that d- debate from a year ago, mm. whether it's going to be a deep V U or L, L w, is no recovery. A w, swoosh, a Nike yeah. swoosh. Yeah. The swoosh, and it's turned out to be uh, the first one, the deep V. Um, but uh, the only other country which, on the numbers I've seen so far, did better, has done better than us is China. Of course, that's a bit of an outlier, but that's a, that's a pretty good achievement for Australia. Mm. And it, it is testament to the fact that we've controlled coronavirus far better than most other countries, despite the issues in Victoria. Um, that's meant uh, a reopening. And even if you don't have a lockdown, uh, we saw in Sweden that people behave as if there's a lockdown anyway. So you might as well have had the lockdown. But anyway, mm. we've had a good reopening, e- economic activities, not normal, but closer to normal in Australia than virtually anywhere else. And we had good stimulus supplied, which highlighted, I think, the importance of economics and the, the role economists play in all of this. The advice going to Canberra, going to the Reserve Bank, you'd have to say was very good. You can quibble with the details, but the reality is it worked. Mm. And if it didn't have jobs keeper, expanded job seeker and so on, we would have been in far worse situation and the recovery would have been a lot slower. Yeah, so looking at that number, Shane, because a lot of people have said, great, fantastic, we love this. The next fear, of course, economics and, and market investing always generates fear. We're climbing the well, that's wall. That's all Climbing the wall. Even when you have a good day, even when you have a good day on the market, you worry about the next So we've got Dr. Phil Lowe, and, and who I realise – is, is so appropriately named for the job because he wants to keep interest rates low. And that's his name. <laughs> that's it's like a, a butcher whose his name is Butcher, uh, um, yeah. a baker whose name is Baker. Um, <laughs> and and the, the date 2024 has been thrown out there a lot. Do you think the, the, the amount of growth we're getting might mean we could see rate rises in 2023 rather than 2024? I do. And uh, I mean, I've been of that view for some time now that, that the recovery is occurring a lot faster than the RBA has been expecting. That's leading to uh, a faster strengthening in the jobs market. And ultimately, I think that will see a faster pickup in wages growth and therefore set the conditions uh, for an earlier tightening by the RBA. Um, I, I think, though, there's, there's, some, there's a bit of jawboning in there. What the RBA is trying to do is say to us, we'll act on the basis we're not going to raise rates for a long time. Um, by putting the number 2024 in there, they've just underlined it that rate hikes for a long way off. Now, secretly, they're hoping that the jobs market will improve faster, that wages growth will pick up faster. 
Um, but they're worried that if they say, well, we might have to raise rates next year or six months' time, that uh, that, that will dampen things and, and we won't get that pickup in wages growth we really need. Mm. So in a way, they're sort of playing games with us, but I think that's probably appropriate because we spent most of the last decade, particularly the last five years, with wages growth, which was just way too low, and that has long-term problems. If you keep running wages growth that low, people get annoyed. It leads to a dissatisfaction in the community. Uh, tensions like you see in the US. Mm. And I think uh, the RBA is right, therefore, to, to sound a lot more dovish than might seem justified by some of the recent economic data. Mm. Yeah, I've been using the that Seinfeld line that George Costanza uh, offered one night, that it's not a lie if you believe it. <laughs> <laughs> and so I'm... But that's a good one. That's yeah, a good one. I do think that the Reserve Bank Governor... Would if we would like to raise in 22, 23, because the economy is so good that it could do it. But you're right; he, he's giving you, he's giving us the long date of twenty twenty four, and I and I hope he's wrong too. I, I I hope the economy is so good we can get back to normal because then savers might get better term deposits as well. Well, savers get better term deposits. Uh, well, I, I think it works on a whole bunch of reasons. You know, people say, well, why don't just lower the inflation target and forget about it? I reckon there's a whole bunch of problems with that sort of reasoning. It's a bit like saying, well, when we have inflation above target, let's just raise it. Um, changing the goalpost doesn't work. But more importantly, you can see the issues in Japan. If you chronically run your inflation rate close to zero, you can quite easily tip over into deflation. Mm. And yeah, we all like falling prices, but that's if our wages are going up. If wages start falling, that will be a big problem. So I, I think at the end of the day, you do want to see um, stronger growth. You want to see a tighter labour market. We want to see full employment and we want to see decent wages growth and inflation around that target. Um, and, yeah, we'll all be celebrating when Reserve Bank can raise rates on the back of that and that will offer a better deal to, to those people who do want to have their money in bank deposits. Yeah. Is part of the problem for inflation also this age of digital disruption, Shane? It seems to me that digital disruptors not only break the law, they also do reduce prices. And that's why consumers like them being criminals, breaking the law, because, you know, it delivers food cheaper, it delivers people cheaper, it does everything cheaper, despite the fact that they're, they're often breaking the law compared to the, you know, the incumbent businesses that have to take out insurance and all that <laughs> sort of stuff. Do you think that well, it's like uh, Uber versus taxis? Yeah, exactly right. <laughs> um, yeah. Taxis complied with all the rules, yeah. and then suddenly the Uber guys come along. Um, but anyway, yeah, I mean, it, there's no doubt that the disruption has intensified, and that's what mo has made life tougher for central banks in recent times. It's a complete opposite of what we had in the 1970s and early 80s, mm. uh, when there wasn't a lot of competition and prices went higher and higher. So. Yeah, there's, there's no doubt that digitalization and competition that's flowed from it has been mostly a good thing, unless you're in one of those industries which is, which has been disrupted. Yeah, exactly. Now, before we wrap up, mate, I think a lot of people say, great, Shane Oliver and Peter Switzer, two fantastic predictors who've had a very good track record for a long time. I hope they're saying that. They, they should be saying that because it is true. Well, they uh, may not say that on Twitter, you know. Occasionally, you get, you get picked up on Twitter. Uh, I've got yeah. rid of all those nasty critics who, who don't know what they're talking about. But um, a lot of people would be saying, all right, it's great, but the government's spending a lot and the debt and the deficit's really big. Are mm. we going to be able to manage uh, the debt and deficit to a better level in a reasonable period of time? 
Well, I think we will. If the economy is surprising on the upside, that means the budget deficits will fall faster mm. than was predicted in the May budget. And therefore, we'll get closer to the point or we'll get to that point earlier where our level of debt will stabilise and start to fall. Uh, so in that sense, I, I think that the projections being put out by the federal government are probably a bit on the cautious side. And the reality is we'll end up with lower debt, debt coming down faster than they're projecting. The other aspect is that when you've got a situation where interest rates are so low in Australia, it does make some sense for government to borrow because the growth in the economy is paying for the interest on that debt. So as long as interest rates are low, I don't think it's a major problem. Even if they go up a bit from here, if we get, a, get rates up to, say, 3%, yeah, there's still below a rate of growth in the economy. The final point to note is that the level of public debt in Australia is pretty low compared to the US, Europe, Japan. It doesn't mean you know, we should become the best of a bad bunch, um, but it does give us a little bit of leeway that other countries don't have. And there's just one other final, final point. You and I, and I remember you, you were around back then because I used to listen to you on the Doug Mulray Triple M uh, <laughs> breakfast program. Uh, back in those days, we were talking about the Banana Republic and becoming a boiling frog. And at the core of that was a massive current account deficit problem. Whereas, as we heard uh, in the last day, we have a massive current account surplus. Yeah. So we're actually a net creditor to the rest of the world. We're not borrowing from the rest of the world. So we're not relying on foreigners to fund our public debt. So all of those things um, give me a little bit of comfort. Um, yes, I'd like to get it down for the next rainy day so we can uh, do what we did last year and do what we did through the GFC. But I, I wouldn't be as worried. I mean, some people get really worried about this sort of stuff. I, I don't think it's the big thing to worry about at the moment. I think there's, if you want to worry about things, there's probably more important things like global warming to, to get concerned about. But I think that the public debt levels are not the big one. Okay, so you give me a fantastic way to end this interview because in those days when we had a massive current account deficit, the fear was that every man, woman and child owed some Japanese banker $425,322 or something like that. And I remember going on Clive Robertson's Newsworld to talk about exactly that. But it's yeah. now, now the whole thing has flipped around that we are a lender like Japan used to be. And so let's finish off on that great song, I'm Turning Japanese. I'm Turning Japanese. I think so. Thank you very much, Shane Oliver. Thank you, Peter. Well, if there's one generation that we've been really surprised about, it's been the millennials, and I work with a whole lot of millennials who I both love and occasionally hate, but I'm sure they hate me as well <laughs> at times. Um, but the new generation is called Gen Alpha, and uh, to explain this group of young Australians to us. We've got Ashley Fell, who's Director of Advisory and Social Research at McCrindle. Ashley, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. So you and Mark uh, hang out, just spend your life studying people, don't you? Absolutely. Um, we call ourselves social researchers, which is an affectionate term um, for basically like professional people watchers. Yeah. And professional studying- busy, busy bodies. <laughs> Absolutely. And just observing what's going on and, and running lots of surveys and focus groups and finding out about people's attitudes and behaviours. And yeah, we do take a particular interest in the generations. Yeah. I think I started talking to Mark when he was making his name when Gen X were probably the, the one. Given his age, Gen X would have been the one. Then we invented Gen Y. And, now tell us, how did 
Gen Y become millennials or was it something that happens simultaneously but we in the media just use Gen Y all the time? Yeah, so it's really interesting. I think millennials originated from the US um, but millennials describes Generation Y, those between Gen X and Gen Z and they're currently aged in their late 20s and 30s and um, I guess because they were coming of age in the new millennium, that's why they've been called millennials. But it's really interesting because in the media recently, there's been a bit of a feud, if you will, like there always is, um, right. between generations, between Generation Z and millennials. And I think Generation Z have come out going, don't call us millennials because a lot of people just go millennials equals young people. Yeah. And Gen Z are like, no, no, we're different. We don't wear baggy jeans. We don't have side parts. Um, and the millennials are hitting their 40s. So there is a distinction between Generation Z and the millennials or Gen Y. Okay, we're going to get you to sort this out. But as I was listening to you, I, I remember I was once invited to do a, um, a debate and it was a debate between baby boomers, Gen Xs and Gen Ys. And, and I was paired up with um, Jean Kitson, the comedian, who's around the same age as me. Um, and then there were a, a couple of Gen Ys. Um, and then uh, my son was recruited to be a, a Gen X with, um, with Kitty Flanagan, yeah, who's pretty, a pretty talented uh, comedian in her own right. Absolutely. And I remember my, my son actually started his presentation by saying that to, to the left of him was the most spoilt generation of all time, namely us, the baby boomers, and to my right was the most despised generation of all time, the Gen Ys. Of course, a Gen X would say that to a Gen Y. It was, it actually was very well received by the audience, which probably was mainly made up of Gen X. They won the debate that, that particular day. Um, but let, let's just go, go through it then. Uh, if, if you had to characterise, I may be catching you out here, but you're so smart. Actually, I know you can do this. If you had to characterise Gen X in comparison to Gen Y, how would you do it? Well, we talk a lot about Generation X as almost the silent generation, um, almost like the forgotten ones because the baby boomers have gotten a lot of commentary and then the millennials have got a lot of commentary, yeah. or the Gen Ys, I should say. Uh, we prefer the term Gen Y. Yeah, me too. Um, and I think Generation X have also, you know, they're a really hardworking generation. They've been sort of sandwiched between caring for their older parents and then caring also for their younger kids who are staying at home later in life. And that's why they've been called the kippers who are kids in parents' pockets eroding the time <laughs> savings. So um, they're, they're a very noble generation, I think, Gen X. And then you've got the Gen Ys or the millennials who kind of came in to the workforce um, wanting flexible working conditions before, this is before COVID, mm. um, made that such a mainstream part of our working style, um, who were kind of at the, the really early stages of the digital world, mm. um, nowhere near compared to their kids who are the gen generation alphas now. Um, but yeah, I think that's probably some of the key differences and Generation Y being really um, immersed in, in the digital world a little bit more than Gen X. Okay, well, while I can be objective about Gen Ys, and I do make the point we have, because the, the guy who's recording me is, a, is one of the, those brilliant Gen Ys, like all the rest of my staff, let be noted John Bragg. Um, but the, the, the interesting thing I, I find if you, if you look at the, the various generations is that you know, when you think about it, if there's anything wrong with Gen Ys, you, you blame the baby boomers who were their parents. 
That's right. I think every generation is a reaction to the ones that went before. And I think that's, I feel like a lot of what we do is almost generational um, defendants. Like a lot of people are like Gen Z, they speak a different language. Who are they? Why do they want to change jobs every five minutes and their expectations of the workforce? And we come in and say, well, they're growing up in the world that was created for them um, by the generations that have gone before them. So yeah, I think there is uh, an element of responsibility for the parents who have raised these kids and, and generations, but the intergenerational sort of warfare and commentary is an age-old thing that everyone just loves to participate in, I think. <laughs> I think I think in the 60s uh, when I was young, um, I, there was a song on the, hit on the hit parade, which people wouldn't know what a hit parade is nowadays, actually, but it was, what's the matter with kids today? That was, that was the song that was big in those days. I, think, I guess you could sing that nearly every generation. Um, your, your story that I'm, you know, I've read, um, says, make way for Gen Alpha. Are they that aggressive that we have to make way for them? <laughs> yeah, I think it's interesting. A lot of people um, sometimes wonder around why we name them that. So Mark is credited with giving them that label, which is really cool. And we've mm. been talking about them for over a decade now um, and then obviously just released this new book. And I think a lot of people think, oh, is it like alpha male type term but actually what the intention was is just to move to the greek alphabet and start there because um with the end of the alphabet with gen z about a decade ago mark thought what's what's coming next and there was no commentary there was no discussion and so he ran a survey of australians and said what do you think the next generation should be called and a lot of people said generation a or generation technology but what mark thought was let's move to the greek alphabet to signify this whole new world that the first generation born entirely in the 21st century many of them will live to see the 22nd century um they've you know the same year they began being born that was the same year that we first had ipads in our hands instagram launched that same year they were born so it's a whole different world for them mm -hmm. um but yeah they will be the largest generation in history by the time they've all been born just based on global birth rates so yeah we should be um i think we believe taking the time to understand a little bit about them okay so so Gen Z st stops at what year? So Gen Z, 2009, that's the last year of their birth. And then 2010 marked the year of the beginning of Generation Alpha. Okay. So, so Generation Alpha, the oldest one would be 11. Yep. Okay. So what's so significant about these 11-year-olds and younger? I think, you know, every generation before them, apart from maybe the, the youngest generation Zs, will remember a time before technology was so immersive, whereas I think Generation Alpha are only ever going to know a world where they, the glass is, you know, everything that they touch is glass. You know, older generations, my generation, probably yours, keep your grubby hands off the glass, you know, and this generation are just engaging. And I've, I've seen videos of little kids expecting magazines to be touch screens because, and we laugh and we mm. go, that's crazy, but that's the world that they're being shaped in. Yeah. And everything that all the research we conducted for the book, all the parents we ran focus groups with and experts we interviewed said technology is just so different for them. Um, and then I think COVID and the impacts that that's going to have on how they work and how they engage with the world. And again, how integrated digital devices and technology is to their work, to their learning, to their education. 
Um, so yeah, I think they're very digital, they're very social, they're very global, they're very mobile, they'll have more jobs and more careers than any other generation, and they're engaging on very visual platforms and expecting marketing, communication messages to be delivered to them in really engaging ways. So I think they're some of the key differences um, as to how they compare to other generations who went before them. Are they, are they going to be a really confident generation, do you think? I think they will. And it's really interesting. I was speaking to someone recently who said, we're talking about home ownership and how for Generation Z, we just conducted a study a couple of months ago about how home ownership is still really high among Generation Z's aspirations. Um, so we're talking about, you know, the 12 to 26 year olds this year. Mm. Um, and I think that's probably come from a place of seeing the Gen Ys locked out of the housing market, all the talk of the smashed avo and that apathy that came with Gen Y or the millennials or the parents of Generation Alpha around home ownership. Whereas Gen Z have been kind of ready to buckle down and work hard and go, we don't want that to happen to us. Um, and so I think there's that for Gen Z, but then Gen Alpha are going to come through. And I think they will be more confident. One of the challenges with Gen Z is that I think technology was really new for, for them, whereas now we've had these devices for 10 years, we know a little bit more about the challenges that they pose to well-being, to mental health. Uh, and so I think parents are better equipped today than ever before to navigate those challenges. And I think Gen Alpha, um, yeah, they will be confident, we, we believe, and we're really positive about their outlook as well as wanting to be real about the challenges that they will face. It's funny, I've got uh, three grandchildren who are all Gen Alpha, so I'm particularly interested in um, um, my um, second youngest, Teddy, who's um, four going on five. He he was doing something yesterday where he was you know, um, wanting to win and his mother quite rationally explained to him, Teddy, you don't have to win all the time. You know, It's, it's okay to see other people win and, and enjoy the fact that that other person has won. And Teddy went under the table and started crying about the reality of what his mother was saying. And, that, and after about a minute of, of crying, he turned around and said, can't we both win? And I wonder if that's a sign of this, this generation that, you know, our generation was like, you, you go out there to win. And if you don't win, okay, you're a loser. You have to, you have to cope with that and someone's just better than you. It's because of the parenting, and the parenting is far more enlightened and it's far more caring about the planet and all that sort of stuff. These kids are going to be different as a consequence, aren't they? Absolutely. And I think that's something that we often look at. And in the book, we look at the context shaping them because there are characteristics of young people that are consistent, I think, over time, regardless of when you were five years old. You're trying to navigate what it means to lose and what it means to not get your way when you've been the centre of your family or told, you know, you're you're so special, which these kids are. Mm. Um, but then we look at the context surrounding them. So, you know, we look at, yeah, the digital world, the global world, there's more diversity. There is a greater focus on the environment. They're looking at their older siblings who are Generation Z, who are looking up to Greta Thunberg and, and that, I guess, empowerment that comes with technology and having a voice and having a say. Um, even in the games that they play, which again are very digital, they've got more agency, they've got more creativity, they're used to having a seat at the table. Um, we ran a survey last year and we found 80% of Australian parents of Generation Alpha said their children have influenced their household decisions to be more environmentally conscious um, because it's being embedded in the shows they watch and the characters they engage with. So, yeah, I do think they're going to be confident. 
they are going to be, um, yeah, there's some real great benefits there around ethical consumption, around prioritising the environment, around equality, around diversity, um, all of those things that are sort of at the forefront of our common world today and, and a priority for their parents, which are the millennials, is going to flow onto the Gen Alphas as well. Tough question, um, Ashley, but you know, you're the expert. Um, are they going to be easy to employ? Great question. Um, I think they will have expectations like their older counterparts. Um, we actually say that a Generation Z or a school leaver today will have 18 jobs across six careers. And most employers freak out when I say that. Um, yeah, because- I'm freaking out. I'm freaking out. <laughs> Because the average tenure across all generations now is down to under three years. That's how often people are changing jobs. And it's a changing job market. Um, We've had the gig economy explode in recent times. We've got technology changing the nature of work. Um, And so, you know, I think this generation are going to work across more jobs, more careers, which is a real question for employees in terms of how do we not only attract great talent, but retain great talent. Um, And what we've seen so far, even from Generation Z and our most recent study of them, is that they're a values-driven generation and they want to work with purpose and they want to work for companies they believe in rather than just what the bottom line is in terms of pay or remuneration. And that, again, comes from the economic times and we are in times of change with that in terms of being in a recession, being in a pandemic, the resilience that comes with that. So the context surrounds them. So when when it comes time for Gen Alpha to enter the workforce, which will be happening over the next eight to 10 years for the oldest of them um, in probably a part-time capacity, it'll be interesting to see what that economic context looks like. But I do think employers are going to need to work harder to attract and retain this generation because their expectations are going to be high, which I don't necessarily think is a bad thing. Mm, depends if, if you've you're losing hair like I am, uh, Ashley, but still, good, good point. Uh, here's another hard question. Um, is this generation going to be complacent in the sense that they think, oh, I can always live with mum and dad for a hell of a long time. If I'm switching jobs, or well, 18 jobs in six, in six industries, I might not get that seniority and, and the, the gifts bestowed upon me by loving employers. As a consequence, they might be, you know, in a pay, in a pay uh, range that might not be all that great. So oh, fine, I'll live with mum and dad. They can build a garage out the back, and we'll put them there. We'll take the house, all that kind of stuff. You think it's going to happen? Um, yes, I think so. Yeah, um, look at your face. I thought you were going to say that. <laughs> um, I mean, it's happening now. Uh, in terms of even with the millennial parents, like the the youngest millennials or the Gen Ys are in their late twenties and early thirties, and even this generation of parents are pushing back those life markers of having children, of getting married. More women are in the workforce. Um, more women are getting educated, and so all of these trends, I think, play into that. Um, so, yes, I think they will continue that trend. However, that also relies on, I guess, particularly like the housing market and what's happening in terms of supply and demand and house prices, disparity between wages, growth and house prices. So if some of those areas can correct themselves and we've seen some in, um, some investment there more recently in terms of helping the next generation get into the market, that might ease some of that pressure um, for Gen Alpha. But, yes, I think parents will need to be a little bit wary of that um, and hopefully encourage them to fly the nest maybe sooner than they than they may want to. <laughs> mm, yeah, I've got to say, I'm looking at my um, um, sons and um, their wives and the way that they um, care for their kids and I don't 
I don't think the kids are ever going to leave unless someone gives them a house or <laughs> they marry someone who's so wealthy that you know the the father-in-law or mother-in-law gives them something because the, the the whole arrangement is so um, stacked in the favour of kids at the moment. One last question then, um, uh, Ashley, will they live longer and be wealthier than most people? Yes, we believe so. So, you know, with the advancements in medical technology mm. and just increasing awareness of what makes us healthy, uh, we do think Generation Alpha will live longer than any generation. And that's partly why they will work in more jobs and work later into their life. Um, and therefore, I think they will, we will, we think they will be the most uh, wealthy generation, the most materially endowed, have access to more information than any other generation before. And all these things um, have positives and negatives to each of them. Um, so there's definitely some great opportunities for this generation. There's also some challenges that come with that that I think we need to be aware of. Um, but yes, they will they will live longer. And I think a lot of people question and go, they're so tech savvy. Are they? Is their future going to be entirely digital? And we explore that in the book. We bust we bust some myths that people hold about them. Um, and I think what we believe is yes, their their future will be more digital. But that's the role of the older generations who know the value of interpersonal skills and leadership skills and resilience that come from activities that don't involve a screen. And so that's, I think, our responsibility as those who are leading this generation is to develop those interpersonal skills because that's going to be even more important in more machine-assisted workplaces and communities that they're going to be operating in and engaging with in the future. Well, being an economist, um, Ashley, I guess I could pit my qualifications up against yours as well. And I agree with you. I think they will be wealthier. And I don't know the reasoning that you, you've used, but I would use this reasoning. And as I say, former academic economists, so expect something really high-powered here. <laughs> the starting point is this, I, I find, that grandparents and grandchildren get along really well. And you know why they get along really well? They have a common enemy. <laughs> they have a common enemy. And so <laughs> what's going to happen is you know, grandparents will leave the money to the grandchildren rather than their sons and daughters who are pains in the neck. And so that's where, where the wealth will come from. And so the little Gen Zers, or Gen Zers and, probably Gen, and Gen Alphas will have a really good time on Nana and Poppy's money, I'd say. Yeah, that intergenerational transfer of wealth is going to be happening, absolutely, from the baby boomers. Um, so it'll be interesting to see who it goes to. That's an interesting theory that I agree with probably will come to pass, I think. <laughs> yeah, of all these house prices, the baby boomers is getting richer and richer. And yeah, yeah. those grandchildren, they're, they're pretty important assets. Ashley, thanks for joining us on the program. If, you know, for people who want to read the book, give us the title. It's called Generation Alpha um, and we've got a website called generationalpha.com and you can go there and there's a link to purchase the book, but it's available in most bookshops and bookstores and online. So yeah. hopefully people enjoy it. Yeah. When I publish my books and people ask the question, I always say available in all good and bad bookstores. <laughs> that's right. Ashley, thanks for joining us. Thanks. And that's the show for this week. If you need more Switzer, you can go to Switzer Daily at switzer.com.au. You can become a subscriber to the Switzer Report. That's if you want to get rich investing in shares. And you can check out our TV show on the YouTube channel, Switzer Investing. That's on Monday and Thursday. Thanks for joining us. See you next week. Quentin time! Quentin time! <laughs>